0: Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is your podcast edition for Monday, November 8th, and I am your host, as always, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Hope you had an outstanding weekend as we kick into a new month and also the changing of the clock. Hope that didn't wreak too much havoc on your weekend. It always seems to for me, but I will enjoy the sun coming up a little earlier in the morning. I hope you will as well. All right, we got a lot to dive into in this episode, so we want to get right to it. A reminder, our line panel from our most recent episode included Dan Foley. He's one of our regulars and former House Minority Whip. Also one of our regulars, Michael Burr, Who is a public health consultant? And we welcome back Inez Russell Gomez from the editorial page at the Santa Fe New Mexican. In our last episode, if you didn't catch it, they talked about, of course, the big news of last week, the election results. Also, news that the uh, Roundhouse, our state capitol, will no longer uh, allow firearms inside the building except for police and Uniformed military, So go back, give that a listen if you haven't already. But we also talked to that group about the CDC and FDA's approval last week of the Pfizer vaccine for COVID for kids ages 5 through 11. And that comes in a time in New Mexico in our cases continue to just surge in almost an unexplainable way. Uh, Last Thursday, I believe it was, it was about 1,600 cases. And of course, we're heading into flu another six season. And so there is a lot of hope that uh, getting our kids vaccinated will help turn the tide there. But we also know that those who may be hesitant to get the vaccine might even be more hesitant with their children, even though it has been approved. So wanted to find out what messaging should look like, uh, the opinions from our line panel, and just how we roll this out and really try to beat this thing back for good. So here now, host Gene Grant.
1: NOW LET'S MOVE ON TO A BIG DEVELOPMENT IN THE RECOVERY FROM THE COVID-19 PANDEMIC THE FDA OFFICIALLY APPROVING THE PFIZER VACCINE FOR CHILDREN AGES 5 TO 11 AND THE CDC FOLLOWING SUIT AND GIVING ITS BLESSING THAT OPENS THE DOOR FOR TENS OF MILLIONS MORE AMERICANS TO GET VACCINATED SOMETHING THAT SHOULD EASE PARENTS FEARS AND THEORETICALLY CUT DOWN ON TRANSMISSION MICHAEL HOW IMPORTANT WAS THIS STEP IN THE WIDER FRONT AGAINST COVID-19?
2: WELL IT'S AN IMPORTANT THING FOR THE for New Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, specifically, as well as the nation, um, and of course, New Mexico has about six percent of New Mexico cases have been with children, mm-hmm. aged five to eleven, mm-hmm. and um, unfortunately, you know, and and we've had three hundred children in New Mexico who've been ho- hospitalized for COVID, and unfortunately, five have passed away. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's a it's it, you know it, it's an important step for us if we're, you know, our children. Are extremely important to all of us here in New Mexico, and we need to do everything we can to protect them.
1: Mm-hmm. Inez, um, of course, New Mexico is near the top of the country in terms of vaccination rates, but will people be more, a little more hesitant to vaccinate their kids? It's just a little bit different when it comes to children versus themselves, I got to think, for some people.
3: I think that's right I have friends who actually are posting on uh, Facebook right now with smiley faces saying we're scheduled this weekend they have been waiting they are thrilled and they want their children vaccinated what worries me is that again if you don't get you know close to 100 percent it doesn't have the protective quality that we need and we go back to the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated And I, I totally understand a parent might be a little more reluctant with a young person because you're worried about long term effects. But I also believe if we protect each other with vaccinations, we're going to be done with this and on to whatever's next in our crisis of, of the year. It mm-hmm. seems like that we're living through now.
1: Mm-hmm. Dan, we've had a share of masks, protests, uh, that's for sure. But now we've got kids potentially vaccinated. Does that reboot the mask or rejigger the mask conversation in some way? Will parents be? feeling like well you know what my kid I took that step to get my kid has uh, my kid vaccinated why
4: do they still need to wear a mask is some of that potentially a problem yeah so i think there's a you know, there's a lot in that question gene mm-hmm. that you asked first of all i think you know um it doesn't matter where you stand on an issue people seem to rally around their kids right, right. i mean at the end of the That's day right. you know you could say i believe this about vaccinations you believe that about but when we start lumping kids into it people seem to get a little You know less tolerant of having long conversations I think yes we're going to have these conversations and we're going to have these conversations for multiple reasons one is as I've said before look I I I always I feel bad having to give the disclaimer I had COVID and I'm vaccinated Mm -hmm. Um, you know my wife is vaccinated you know I'm not an anti-vaxxer But I got to tell you, the way this has been handled with information and disinformation from all sides is leading people to just throw their hands in the air. Mm -hmm. And now you start to say, "Okay, we're going to go down and we're going to make this happen to kids. You know, I was watching the other day when the FDA made the decision to roll this out for kids. And they're just people are just not they're not cognizant of what they're doing. Right. There's a doctor who literally on the Zoom meeting when they voted said, listen, we're not going to know the long term effects on the kids until the kids get the vaccine. So I'm voting in order in order for the kids to get the vaccine, which makes you go, hold on a second, mm-hmm. wait a second. Mm-hmm. So you're saying my kids should be a test monkey, that my kids should be a Petri dish. And so I think that you couple that with what we're seeing now with adults, right? We've all been pushed to get vaccinated. We kept hearing these numbers, you know, the numbers keep moving from, you gotta get this percentage, this percentage, this percentage, Mm -hmm. we all have gotten these people, I mean, New Mexico's leading in the number of percentages, but we're still wearing masks, we're still doing things that people I hear all the time saying, well, why did I get the vaccine? If I went and got the vaccine, and the other thing we gotta remember too, these are not immunizations, they're vaccines. That's right. They don't keep you from getting sick. Yeah. They just yeah. limit the how bad you're going to be sick. And so there's a difference between having a conversation about what's the risk I'm going to take for my child to immunize them against polio versus what's the, ch- the risk I'm going to take against my kid getting sick with COVID. And on top of that, the numbers, I agree with Michael, we all wanna protect our kids, but I think a lot of people are weighing the unknown versus the known. The unknown being what's the long-term effects of vaccinations, the known being, listen, kids seem to be carriers, but overwhelmingly they don't really get sick from it, not nearly as bad as adults do. So why are you taking the risk? I think they gotta do a better job of rolling out the benefits of getting kids done. And I think in regard, you know, it's a bad thing to say, but there's gotta be a trade-off, right? The state's got us, I think the state needs to come out and say, if we can get to this number of vaccinated kids, we're going back to school full-time. This number, we're not wearing masks anymore. I think there's, you know, kind of like they did the hundred, they found out how to get adults vaccinated, right? Give them a hundred bucks. People will do just about anything for a hundred bucks. They gotta find a way to get kids in the program. Michael, Dan is literally begging this
1: question. Michael, have we learned something about the first go around about how to do this? And there's anything in the you know the rollout should be changed, adapted, implemented when it comes to kids?
2: Do we have to change the messaging here? Well, I I guess for me, I mean it's an imperfect world,
0: Mm -hmm. and
2: we're dealing with something that we've never dealt with a, a, a major you know issue that we've never dealt with before. And I guess I would say, based BASED ON MY UNDERSTANDING, had, had, we done, HAD WE DONE SOME THINGS EARLY ON AND NOT POINTING FINGERS AT ANY ADMINISTRATION, mm-hmm. but HAD WE DONE SOME APPROPRIATE AND TIMELY INTERVENTIONS EARLIER ON, WE IN FACT WOULD NOT BE AT THIS PLACE IN TIME. Mm-hmm. It, WE WOULD HAVE HAD BETTER OUTCOMES. Uh, BUT once, it, ONCE YOU MUDDLE THE WATER, THEN it, it's, it, it's, it's, IT'S REALLY VERY DIFFICULT TO, YOU KNOW, I MEAN, THERE ARE ALL OF THESE VARIABLES NOW. THERE'S THIS POLITICAL, THE DIVISIONS ABOUT MY RIGHTS VERSUS COMMUNITY RESPONSIBILITY right. and, AND RESPONSIBILITY TO, to your, YOUR ELDERS AND YOUR CHILDREN. Mm-hmm. I MEAN, THERE'S ALL THESE THINGS THAT HAVE got, COME INTO PLAY THAT HAVE TOTALLY MUDDLED THE FIELD. Mm. And, um, AND SO I THINK in, IN HINDSIGHT, WE WILL LOOK BACK AND WE WILL HAVE LEARNED MANY LESSONS and, um, and, AND but WE'RE LEARNING AS WE GO ALONG. AGAIN, WE'VE NOT DEALT WITH ANYTHING OF THIS NATURE FOR QUITE SOME TIME. Mm-hmm. THE OTHER THING IS WE BETTER LEARN SOME THINGS BECAUSE THIS IS NOT THE END OF IT.
1: THAT'S A GOOD POINT. Inez, I CAN'T HELP AS A PARENT, MY KIDS ARE OLDER THAN THIS 5 TO 11 COHORT WE'RE TALKING ABOUT, BUT YOU KNOW HOW KIDS ARE. SOME KIDS ARE VACCINATED. SOME KIDS ARE NOT. THERE'S INTIMIDATION IN THE CLASSROOM ON THE PLAYGROUND. THEY BRING THEIR PARENTS, YOU KNOW WHAT, IN THE DOOR WITH THEM. ARE WE ASKING A LOT OF KIDS HERE WHEN WE ASK THEM TO BE VACCINATED? IS THERE EXTRA STUFF HERE?
3: Uh, I DON'T THINK SO. I MEAN, YOU'RE ASKING A CHILD TO NOT GET AS SICK AS HE OTHERWISE COULD AND TO PERHAPS NOT CARRY IT TO HIS ELDER GRANDMOTHER. Mm -hmm. Um, I BELIEVE THAT WHEN DAN raises THE POINT, WHY DID I GET VACCINATED? WELL, YOU GOT VACCINATED, SO PERHAPS WE WOULDN'T HAVE A VARIANT THAT PROVED SO STRONG THAT WE HAD TO GO BACK TO BEING MASKED. THAT'S RIGHT. IF PEOPLE HAD JUMPED ON THE CURE, WE GOT A BASIC CURE IN TERMS OF DEATH. IF THEY HAD MOVED AHEAD, GOTTEN VACCINATED, WE WOULDN'T BE IN THIS PLACE EITHER. AND AS MUCH AS I BELIEVE THAT PEOPLE HAVE A RIGHT TO MEDICAL CHOICES, I ALSO BELIEVE THAT I HAVE A RIGHT NOT TO BE INFECTED BY YOUR MEDICAL CHOICE. Mm -hmm. AND I HAVE PEOPLE IN MY FAMILY AS WE ALL DO WITH UNDERLYING CONDITIONS. AND I CAN'T RISK, YOU KNOW, MY 82-YEAR-OLD MOTHER-IN-LAW BEING AROUND UNVACCINATED PEOPLE. I CAN'T RISK MY KID WITH ASTHMA OR MY OTHER RELATIVES WITH DIABETES BEING OUT THERE EVEN THOUGH THEY'RE VACCINATED BECAUSE THEY CANNOT GET SICK.
4: And that's the million-dollar million go question. Right?
1: Got to go, damn my uh, fault there. Thanks to our line panelists for their input this week. And we should add, if you haven't gotten your vaccine yet on our topic, go to the state health department's website to find a shot near you.
0: Students at the University of New Mexico recently rallied by the sub uh, with a very special and specific message around climate change. That was towards the UNM Foundation, which is the fundraising arm of the university. They want them to stop investing in fossil fuel industries as part of their fundraising and their financial uh, obligations because of the damage those industries do to the climate. And so they held a protest and then they actually marched down to President Garnett Stokes's house and had a few minutes with her. And so Laura Pascus, our environment reporter, was on scene as well, along with our production manager, Anthony Lostetter. They talked to some of the protesters, learned more about their message and what that conversation with President Stokes was like. And if you want to read more about what the University and President Stokes Stokes' response to the rally was, you can do that in the show description right here. But we wanted to take you along and find out more about this very interesting rally and the message behind it.
5: The reason why it's important for the UNM Foundation to divest from fossil fuels is because we understand that fossil fuels and um, the climate crisis are progressively ruining our lives, our planet, our beautiful world. When UNM is actively investing in these companies, um, they are kind of, in a way, killing us. And it's important for us to divest, because if we want to have a future, then we can't be investing in fossil fuels. As an institution, the university is helping us get degrees, helping us get jobs, experience, um, mentorship. And it seems kind of hypocritical for them to be pushing us to graduate and to find all these wonderful opportunities out in the world while they're actively destroying it for us.
6: Most of universities here in the United States um, invest in fossil fuels. Harvard actually um, accomplished the best from fossil fuels, so we took that as an inspiration and we're saying if they could do it, we can do it too. So that's our goal. Climate change is very important to me. I think as an indigenous person, I've witnessed like how the land and my people and my culture and my language are kind of tied together with it and so when Um, my tribal people and my community experience the um, adverse effects of climate change, it is more direct, it's more um, it's more intimate, it's more personal at this point, like it impacts the culture and the language and just like those ties together. I know we can't convince everyone to care about the world or at least like advocate like us, but I just wanted them to understand what we're fighting for and if they have Good life, like they had opportunity to study and work and you know, like (laughs) um, experience different things, they should at least care that our future generations deserve the same. President Stokes came up afterwards, like while we were talking, she said, Is there anything I can help you with? And so we were kind of asking her about divestment and climate action in general, and she said that divestment wasn't on their priority list, which I'm not surprised about, but. that they were working on some kind of action plan, um, sustainability broadly. She said it might not just be environmental stuff, so I have no idea what that means, um, but she said they are hoping to have that ready by February. We have continuously asked UNM, we've had rallies and protests, we delivered a letter, uh, attended um, meetings and written resolutions, and so um being constantly ignored and pushed to the bottom of agendas i think that's why we're here today and that's why we filed the complaint in general is because we can no longer like wait and sit around and um, just continue to be ignored and so i think that's the message of today is that we're going to keep coming or we're going to keep um, protesting and rallying
0: laura paskis always a busy bee when it comes to environmental news and so, we also did an interview recently with a familiar guest, Philip Rust. He's a hydrogeologist with Bernalillo County. And back in 2017, we caught up with Philip in the East Mountains where many domestic wells were running dry. And we learned all about how the groundwater supplies there in the East Mountains are these pockets of water. It's not a big giant pool. And so, that is why wells run dry and why. One well that's uh, driven down 100 feet in one area has water and another one that may be nearby and is 200 feet down doesn't have any water. And since that time, I'm sure we've all noticed that there's even more development houses going up in the East Mountains and so wanted to get an update on how the water supplies are out there and why we all need to be concerned about the overall health of our groundwater supplies. We did not have time in the show for the full interview, but we're going to bring it all to you here in a series of segments, really looking at, again, what the groundwater is like in the East Mountains, how you balance water management with development, also why we all need to care about this. In addition, there is the ability, it's what Philip Russ does as a hydrogeologist, he goes out to people's properties, especially every well and test for you and see the health of that well and the groundwater supplies. And so he's going to explain how you go about that, what the demands of that are. Hint, hint, it's not much, so do it if you can. It's a great idea. So uh, here now, once again, environment reporter, Laura Paskus.
7: I'm Laura Paskus. And in 2017 the our land team visited the petri family in the east mountains their domestic well had gone dry and they weren't the only ones having that problem at the time we also met with philip rust a hydrogeologist with bernalillo county who was tracking groundwater levels in the area today many communities in new mexico including the east mountains are seeing a housing boom more and more people want to move here but wells are still drying and groundwater levels are still dropping. This week on New Mexico in Focus, I check back with Philip Rust to find out what's happening underground. Hi Philip Rust. Thank you so much for being on New Mexico in Focus with me.
8: Laura, thank you for inviting me back. I really appreciate you following up with me. Thank you.
7: Great. So let's start really basic for our audience. We're talking about groundwater today when we think about groundwater in New Mexico we're not thinking about like a giant underground cave with a lake in it.
8: That would be fortunate because an underground lake would have a lot more storage capacity than the rocks around here do but yes all we're talking about is water that is stored in the subsurface in small cracks uh, between pores between grains uh, over a vast area and yes it may seem like the numbers are big but unfortunately the numbers we're withdrawing are also very big and as we're here to discuss um, unfortunately in a lot of places in bernalillo county and the surrounding area water levels are being depleted substantially faster than 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 it's natural naturally recharging
7: so we did a show with you four years ago looking at the east mountains can Mm -hmm. you describe for people a little bit what this what region we're going to be talking about
8: well we can talk about all of bernalillo county but um there's a couple reasons why I, i don't want to focus on all of bernalillo county mostly because um, everything within Albuquerque um, is governed by the Albuquerque Water Authority and I, I, I generally don't cross into their realm too much. Now there's certain parts of Albuquerque that aren't incorporated that, uh, like the North Albuquerque Acres area, a lot of people out there are still on wells. I do, I do monitor some of their wells, but one of, my, one of my things that I do for the entire community, primarily outside of Albuquerque, is I monitor those water levels in domestic wells. I've got almost 350 wells in the program, that I now monitor. I do it about three times a year, and I will go to people's houses. I will monitor their, I will check their water levels, and uh, at the every time, every time I do that, what I do is I send them an update with a summary of all the water levels I've taken to date, and also a graph showing their water levels over time. So it's a science-based and service-based program, and it's really working with the community, and they get the they get the service and I get the science, and it helps them keep track of what's going on with our groundwater resources. And you brought up the, you know, the East Mountains. And, that's, and the reason I, I, I focus on that is because that's where, that's where the, the hottest place is as far as groundwater withdrawals. We see the, the greatest declines there. And actually Albuquerque itself uh, is less... We still have to be very mindful about how much water we use, but there's been a very robust groundwater um, and, and water usage um, public awareness program in Albuquerque that has been very successful, and I am going to quote some numbers, so please, if, if I don't do a very good job, but I want to say since, since, you know, the Albuquerque Water Authority has initiated a program to educate people for water conservation and water usage, they actually, uh, um, you've seen a, a decrease in the water issues from approximately 250 gallons per person per day to about 129 gallons per person per day, a substantial decrease. -hmm. That's almost half what we used the 10 or 15 years ago. Whenever they started those programs, and what you've actually seen is the groundwater. The aquifers have rebounded in response to that decreased usage. And I think we can see the same thing in the East Mountains if we have a similarly robust community awareness program.
7: Right. So when we talked four years ago, the county studies had shown that groundwater levels were dropping in the East Mountain area at 1.8 feet per year. Now, four years later, what are we looking at? It's accelerated.
8: Yes, it's around 2.5 to 2.8, uh, depending on exactly where you're at. And some places, unfortunately, are dropping about 10 feet per year, and that's more geologically motivated than, than water usage motivated. But it's all combined. If you look at the geology, you look at recharge, you look at climate, uh, and you look at you know human human usage and depletion. It's it's um, the the equation isn't favorable for for the future in the East Mountains.
7: So what does that mean for people who have a house and a well there, or planning to build a house and drill a well there?
8: That is one of the biggest questions I get while being the county hydrogeologist, is a lot of people call me and they want to know what the water levels, or what the aquifer is like in this area, where it is, how much it costs to put in a well, and all of these factors. And thankfully, I often have fairly good answers on which direction, you know, the which direction the, the water levels are going in a particular area, and it, p- keep in mind. And it, it it's when you talk about two and a half to, to three feet of drawdown per year, that sounds extreme. But if you've got what we call 300 feet of wetted depth in your well, 300 feet of actual clearance, those 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 wells are going to be good for a long time. But you know, they they still won't be good forever.
7: Mm-hmm. And so you know, we visited um, four years ago. We visited a family that had a well that no longer reached water. And um, what do people, when this happens, when your your groundwater becomes inaccessible, what kinds of options do people have? Like, what do people do?
8: That is an excellent question. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's a little complicated. It's more complicated than just giving you the examples. So I say usually the answer to that is a fiscal solution. And what you're gonna see is as water levels decline, people have to make a fiscal choice to either haul water, which tends to be very expensive, and they have to buy a big storage tank, and then they have a big system, and uh, they have to haul water periodically, or they drill a deeper well. And I think what you're going to find is that people with the deepest pockets are going to be capable of drilling the deepest wells. And um, that could be good, and it could be bad. But when people convert to hauling water, they usually use a lot less. And so what i've seen preliminary by the way preliminary is that as people's wells go dry i'm starting to see the aquifer starting to taper out in some areas because people are hauling this water and it's often not coming from the sandia basin it's often coming from the estancia basin so really which is already over so we're transferring the, the water needs from one sand from one basin to another and you know, it's robbing Peter to pay Paul if, if you want to look at it that way.
7: Because if I remember, the Estancia basin's mm-hmm. not doing great in terms of its water supplies. It's, been,
8: it's also been over allocated for a very long period of time and declining.
7: Okay. So is there anything that the state can do or is doing in terms of groundwater levels in that particular area?
8: Yes, and I'm really glad you brought that up. In fact, the Office of the State Engineer recently has closed the Sandia Basin to future appropriations. And when they say close, that doesn't mean that, you know, domestic well owners can't get wells. They they, they can. That is not restricted. Mm, is it restricted? Yes, they may, they may reduce the amount of water right for new well permits from, you know, an acre feet per year to three quarters of an acre feet per year. But what it means is when they say close the basin to future appropriations, nobody's going to get, you know, fifteen hundred acres to put in a golf course, or 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 two hundred acre feet per year to start a catfish farm, or nobody's going to start a water park. And the, and the truth is that you know the state engineer realizes that 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 basin is no longer capable of supporting that sort of development.
7: Mm-hmm. So I was just driving around the East Mountains recently and it's so busy. Like there's a ton of traffic up there. There's lots of homes. Yep. looks like there's a lot of new houses going in. Um, and the town of Edgewood recently approved an amendment to their master plan that could potentially mean another 4,000 homes down the road.
8: You're talking about Campbell Ranch and Campbell Ranch over is primarily within the northeast corner of Bernalillo County. And it's true that that is an ongoing development. And the reason they got annexed by Edgewood was, was probably because the restrictions are less. And I have to be very sensitive about what I say uh, about this particular topic, um, other than saying it's development in general, because there was actually a, a legal conflict between the state engineer, Campbell Ranch, Aquifer Science, and Bernalillo County was involved. And I was involved in that. And one of the key things that came out of that uh, whole process was all of the research that I have been doing, um, all of the the water level you know data, all of the trend data and you know if, if if I could extrapolate, I think the state engineer realized for the first time there's a serious problem in the Sandia Basin, and they need to do something about it, and they have so um, i as a county employee, I have to be I have to wage and balance. Uh, development with with the realities of our resources and what we're capable of doing and that's kind of kind of what I do But yes development is continuing has continued and probably will continue to continue
7: I feel like that's one of the things that we see in lots of places not just in the east mountains But we know that there is a constraint on water supplies We know that that's likely going to continue and could potentially worsen Mm -hmm. in the future But it doesn't always seem like our land-use planning and our water planning are are intertwined can you talk about like if it is and maybe how we can do better?
8: Um, I think it is, but we're always trying to, again, balance development with the practicality of the resources at our disposal. And I do play a part of that. In fact, every time there's a subdivision that goes on, I mean, we, there are ordinances the you know the subdivision in the planning stages have to prove that not only is there groundwater available but it's also sustainable and it right now they have that they have to prove there's you know water resources for 70 years and that's not that's not a small feat and they also have to prove that you know they're not gonna you know inadvertently uh, impact you know everyone else around them and and so on and so forth
7: Philip Ross, thanks so much for joining me today thank you so much Laura We've known for a while that that water is the problem. That groundwater levels are dropping. Um, you know, are we changing our behavior?
8: Well, that that is the million-dollar question. And I think you know a lot of folks move here from from other places in you know the country either temporarily or permanently. And we've got this paradigm in mind. You know, like I had a yard when I grew up. I want my kids to have a yard and a nice lawn in St. Augustine. And it's 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 a latent awareness you know, of a problem. And then there's also the folks that have been around for 100 years and said, Grandpa had a big lawn, and I've got a big lawn and a big orchard, and, 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 and that's the way it is. And everybody else who has come afterward, well, they can just restrict their waters. And unfortunately, I, I see both sides of those camps. And I think more people today, certainly a very growing and gaining, gaining momentum um, perception is that water resources are limited, and I'm very optimistic about that. I, I'm, I'm very, very confident that people, people can and do change, especially when they have to.
7: Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that optimism a little bit? <laughs>
8: oh, well, uh, speaking of optimism, um, you know, the, I mean, the, it's like I was saying earlier, I mean, the, the county has these water conservation programs that has, under the, under the auspices of, of Megan Marcy, which runs the water conservation program, um, which um, not only educates people but also helps them move towards water conservation and good water conservation practices. Uh, we've got, you know, a toilet replacement program for the county for old, inefficient, you know, toilets. We've we we've we've got, you know, education programs about low use. Um, um, appliances. We've got a rain barrel program where we give you subsidized rain barrels to help you capture this. And, um, and I'm not an expert on this, so I apologize because I, I miss a lot of staff meetings. But um, there are, I believe the county's actually going to start creating ordinance for capturing rainwater and cisterns for, for human consumption. And I'm, again, I'm very optimistic about. that. I mean, necessity is the, the mother of invention. And you know, people will do what they want until it hurts too much to keep doing it, and then they'll change. Mm-hmm.
7: There are problems with dropping groundwater levels in lots of places around the state. We cover the area around Clovis quite mm-hmm. a bit, um, and certainly the Asuncia Basin. There's there's lots of places mm-hmm. in the state. But why should people care about what's happening in the East Mountains or any of these other places? Like if I'm hooked into the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Water Utility Authority and my top water is still coming on, why should I care?
8: Well, I think I think water availability is is. is um, not 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 endemic to the East Mountains. I mean, it's all throughout the entire Southwest, and even even in Albuquerque, where I wouldn't say you have an unlimited supply of water, but certainly you, you've got a, a re- abundant supply where you can turn on the tap and run it all day. But it's 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 bigger than it's bigger than the local problem. It, like I said, you could you could apply it to all the states, all the dry states of the, the American Southwest. And, you know, for, for instance, the Interstate Stream Commission has to monitor not only how much water comes into the Rio Grande, but how much goes out of it after it goes past Albuquerque. And you know, we've got the, you know, we've got the Rio Grande Compact between Colorado and, and New Mexico and Texas and Mexico. And we, we, we have a legal responsibility to make sure that we don't suck the Rio Grande dry and that we, we pass on the, the obligations we have to the states downstream from us. And so, yes, it's, it's definitely not, um, you know, uh, uh, limited to being a, a local concern. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a statewide, it's a national, it's an international concern.
7: The program that you do, monitoring mm-hmm. groundwater, if somebody wants to get involved with that, how do they do that?
8: Uh, really simple. Uh, we've got a one-page application. It's two pages if you go on each side. Um, you fill it out and it's a liability waiver is what it amounts to being. But um, you, it doesn't cost a dime. You can find out if you pass all my information. You can, you know, send me an email say I'm interested in this program. We do it three times a year except for this summer. I didn't do it this summer. But we do it three times a year. It doesn't cost you a dime. The only hindrance to you is that, or the potential volunteer, is that on the day I visit, I ask that you limit your, limit your water resources for that day so I get a good reading. Mm-hmm. But um, I do, I, I reach out in advance so I don't just show up unannounced. Get mm. chased
7: around by dogs.
8: I have had the most amazing stories I would love to, love to share with people someday. I should write a book about the, 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 the adventures I've had. <laughs>
7: So, and kind of more broadly speaking, Mm -hmm. looking across the state, New Mexico is getting ready or is in the process of launching a 50-year water plan. Yes. What what does this mean for groundwater?
8: Well, um, the Office of State Engineer, um, using the Interstate Stream Commission, has, and the University of, or sorry, New Mexico Tech, has put together this panel of highly capable and highly technical scientists to to explore and, and the basically the future of groundwater resources, of climate, of ecology, of you know groundwater availability and sustainability throughout New Mexico. And they recently came out, it wasn't last month, it was in August, they came out with nine webinars which are fully available to the public. And that I would I would like you know anybody who's interested to 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 watch those and they're all about an hour plus long and they have questions. But the point is that you can contact those scientists directly, but any questions you might have uh, about it and a lot of them get a little academic and they get lost in the weeds. But, but you know, I, I think even even anybody who has an interest should watch these. It's I I found it to be sometimes hurtful that we are going to have to go through a lot of serious changes in New Mexico, but we also have to be very realistic about those changes we can anticipate. And I, I thought they did a fantastic job. I mean, it wasn't just one scientist opinion. They get together and they're very upfront and you know, honest about the good and the bad and the ugly about how, what we're gonna face in the coming years.
7: I feel like to survive in the desert, you have to be a little bit optimistic and also really realistic. Absolutely. I'm curious of what you think 50 years from now, what our biggest challenges
8: are gonna be. Oh, getting along. <laughs> um, I, I, it's hard to anticipate what kind of challenges we're gonna we're gonna have, and I, I think morale is gonna be our biggest challenge. It's not gonna be technical. It's not gonna be resource based. It's gonna be morale about and not dwelling on how things have changed, but you know. Accepting what how things have changed and to be optimistic about the future and make the most of it and you know it's, it's true that you know we can anticipate that our climate's going to change it's changed it's always changed and look at that either as a challenge or look at it as just you know a new a new thing to explore and experience and you you know do what you can and hope for the best and keep moving along and you know make the world a better place one person at a time one person at a time.
0: getting a little cold but I know there are plenty of people out there who maybe still enjoy a little winter camping and we recently got a report from the Center for Western Priorities that uh, sparked all of our interest here at the station that there is a huge surge in requests for permits for campgrounds in New Mexico talking about record highs here and it's been this way for a while and shows no signs of slowing down which is great news in terms of reconnecting with our public lands, getting out, enjoying all the beauty that is our open spaces here in New Mexico. So we wanted to catch up with the center, find out more about that, and a tool they've created to help you uh, find campsites and make those bookings and get out there and experience New Mexico. This is a Facebook Live that we did last week. And if you want to catch those when they happen, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to follow and like our Our Land Facebook page. That's where you can see all of that uh, when we do them, and we encourage you to do that. So here again, Laura Paskus uh, with a guest from the Center for Western Priorities.
9: Good morning, Tyler. Thank you so much for joining me this morning from Boulder, Colorado.
10: Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Laura.
9: So the Center for Western Priorities has a new report out about the increase in camping on public lands. I'm curious, I know it's a big report, but what were some of your major findings?
10: Well, I think one of the biggest findings here is just that camping on federal public lands is on an astronomical rise. Um, I was specifically looking at the time period from 2014 to 2020. And over that time period, um, we're estimating an increase of about 39% occupancy in reservable campsites on federal public lands. And that's all across the country. Um, And I think another thing that's really worth mentioning is the fact that that estimate is even higher in the West. Um, I would say 47%, um, which is 10% higher than nationally. And this, I think, goes along with the fact that More people are getting out on public lands, and they're not just going out hiking. They're actually wanting to spend the night, spend more time in those places.
9: So let's kind of look specifically at New Mexico. I was super interested in what you were finding in terms of um, the occupancy of so many of these sites, Um, a bunch of the high occupancy sites are in the Jemez Mountains, which anyone in central New Mexico knows is a, is a really popular and crowded spot. But can you talk a little bit about what you found here in New Mexico?
10: Yeah, so in New Mexico, a lot of these facilities um, that are reservable on federal public lands are in northern New Mexico. Um, so sort of near Albuquerque, Santa Fe, up towards Taos, that region. Um, and yeah, I would I'm estimating that there's been at least a 26% increase since 2014 in New Mexico, and I, I do think that you're correct, that's probably focused really in the Hemet Mountains there. Um, also, a, a few other specific locations, but that's sort of the general region, um, especially near Valles Caldera National Preserve, Bandelier National Monument, those types of places.
9: So the, the report also includes a tool to help people find less crowded camping spots. Can you tell me about that?
10: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I really wanted to do with this report was make it a tool for the public. Um, I myself am an avid public land user and love to get outside. And um, I realized that there wasn't really a tool to sort of interactively look at where all of these campgrounds are and how popular they might be. Um, so I built it out into a sort of interactive website and um, took the data from 2019 and 2020, which is the best data that we have, Um, and added that onto the map, and anybody can go onto that website and go to wherever they're living or wherever they're interested in visiting, and take a look at the occupancy of a lot of these campsites over the past two years. Um, You can filter it by, you know, if you're looking at summer or off-season, and get a sense of where might be the best place to try and get a reservation.
9: And we'll drop all of these links into the comments so you all can find them. I'm curious, um, you know, what are some of the pluses and minuses of, of these, um, you know, increased use of federal public lands?
10: Um, I think, first of all, just having more people that are getting out on federal public lands is an amazing thing. Um, it's what we want to see. And we need more people to get out there and to fall in love with these places because that's how we're gonna be able to protect them and have them there for future generations. Um, I do think that that also comes with its challenges, certainly um, we've all read some of these stories about you know crazy overcrowding in really, really popular national parks. Um, and certainly when people get out there and don't necessarily know what they're doing, that can also be a challenge. So I think there's um, a need for education Um, of the public as they get out on these lands more, and also a need for funding so that public lands can actually manage these places appropriately.
9: So why was this something that the Center for Western Priorities felt like they needed to study and kind of invest in looking at?
10: I think um, one piece of it is that we are all Westerners and we live out here, we get out there and we've seen these trends ourselves. Um, but it's another thing to actually try and quantify those trends. And we realized that we hadn't seen that many studies of people looking at these specific numbers. Um, And we figured that we could be the people to do that. Um, I think it's also really interesting looking at some of the details of what we found. Um, One thing that we found was that Americans really love our protected areas um, and campsites that are in or even near national parks are the most popular, which is unsurprising. But then, even if you remove all the national parks and the lands near them from the data set, um, other types of protected lands are still more popular than your average Forest Service BLM type of places.
9: So, there's been, especially during COVID, I know your time period goes back to 2014, there was so much talk during COVID. (laughs) continues, continuing talks during the continuing pandemic about public lands use and overcrowding or over usage. We did a story recently about Together for Brothers, which they work on things like transit equity and, and things like that. And their executive director, Christopher Ramirez, was, you know, talking about how There have been all these conversations about overcrowding, but that communities of color and low income families like still can't access public lands. And I'm curious, like what you think about what we can do about um, about kind of both issues, the the overcrowding or or high usage, which also has good parts to it, too, but also that lack of access to public lands
10: access to public lands is a huge issue. Um, And there are certainly a lot of communities, communities of color or um, communities with lower income that don't have as good of access to those lands. Um, And there's actually a lot of public support for increasing access. Um, I think 78% of New Mexicans in a recent poll um, support directing funding to ensure adequate access to parks. So that's great to hear people are behind it. Um, And I think that one way that we can do this is think about how we protect more of these natural areas that are closer into cities. So one example that um, I think you talked about in that story that you mentioned actually is Valle de Oro, which is a great example of an urban national wildlife refuge. Um, But we also need to make sure that we are improving public access to those places. Um, so I think it's twofold. We should be expanding those places, urban national wildlife refuges, other places that are close in the cities, and then making sure that there's funding that goes along with those designations so that local communities can develop transportation systems and actually get out to them, um, which I think then in turn will reduce the number of people that are crowding some of those other places um, because people will discover the awesome things that are right in their own backyards.
9: Yeah, I know. I definitely, I think I used to think that if you were going to enjoy nature, you had to go like way out someplace. Um, and it's, it's really exciting that we have more conversations now about, um, protecting nature and being a part of nature, even in, you know, like the biggest city in New Mexico. I'm curious, um, you know, what surprised you most when you were working on this report or what did you learn that you weren't even expecting to, to find?
10: Um, I think one finding that was really interesting for myself personally, um, was looking at the way that people use public lands and camping facilities all across the country, not just in the West. Um, I grew up in the West, so I'm really used to thinking about Forest Service lands, BLM land, those types of places. Um, but really, when you look at um, a lot of places in the country that don't have those types of public lands, um, Army Corps of Engineer lands are actually very popular. Um, so actually, in terms of the number of raw reservations that people are making, um, it's Forest Service and Army Corps of Engineers. Um, And so that that was a little surprising to me, um, but makes a lot of sense. And I think also highlights um, the fact that not everywhere in the country does have the same access to public land. And that means that we need to be thinking about these things more creatively. Um, It means that places like the Northeast and the South and the Midwest, um, we need to really seriously think about how we preserve nature in those places when we don't have these huge swaths of public land. And whether that means conservation easements or Um, some of these other more creative, collaborative um, ways that we can approach conservation. Um, I think those are going to be really important moving forward.
9: Awesome. Well, thank you, Tyler, for joining me today. I'm excited about the report and especially about the tool to um, find these campsites that have lower, um, you know, site occupancy. And I have to tell you that one of the lowest reservable site occupancy sites on your list is one of my secret favorite camping sites. So um, anyway, thank you so much for joining me. And um, I hope our, our audience checks out the report and gets out there camping soon.
10: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.
0: That'll do it for this week and this episode, sorry, of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We thank you so much for listening. I want to thank the entire New Mexico in Focus team and let you know about some of the things we've got cooked up for next week. We have the return of our signature monthly Our Land Report. Where we learn about a new approach to water management that really gets its inspiration from a feminine native perspective you may have heard about the land back movement uh, but may not be particularly sure about what that's about well you will learn and also how that applies to the new water back movement as well all that coming up in our land also we're going to be talking to someone from the department of education about the uh, ongoing debate about critical race theory and the, the updating of our social studies standards in New Mexico schools. So lots of great stuff coming up. We hope you will join us for all of that and more next time on New Mexico In Focus. That'll do it for this week. And this episode, sorry, of New Mexico in Focus the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We thank you so much for listening. Want to thank the entire New Mexico in Focus team and let you know about some of the things we've got cooked up for next week. We have the return of our signature monthly Our Land Report, where we learn about a new approach to water management that really gets its inspiration from a feminine native perspective you may have heard about the land back movement uh, but may not be particularly sure about what that's about well you will learn and also how that applies to the new water back movement as well all that coming up in our land also we're going to be talking to someone from the department of education about the uh, ongoing debate about critical race theory and the the updating of our social studies standards in new mexico schools So lots of great stuff coming up. We hope you will join us for all of that and more next time on New Mexico in Focus.